The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. I'm obviously not uh, Jimmy. Um, Pastor Jimmy is out in Idaho right now on a, uh, an elk hunt. And in fact, five minutes before the first service, I got a text from him where he's got a photo of a big bull uh, elk. Did I say, yeah, it's a bull elk, uh, you know, uh, in, in, his, in his sights. And he's, he's, I guess, probably calling it in or whatever since they're bow hunting. So we can pray that he succeeded sometime between about 9 o'clock and now. Maybe he's, uh, you know, uh, busy, preoccupied with a, with a big win. Um, so anyway, uh, I get, have the privilege of taking up where we left off last week, which is Genesis chapter 6. And uh, if you were to take a poll of Americans, kind of regardless of whether you've gone to church much in your life or not, this is one of the five big stories that kind of everyone generally has some knowledge on, specifically those stories being birth of Jesus. That's a common story. People kind of know the Christmas story. Then you have David and Goliath and then Noah's Ark. Okay, and today we're talking Noah and, and, and the ark. The other, the other big two would be like Adam and Eve and creation, and, and then Daniel and the lion's den. Those seem to be well-known stories, kind of regardless of, of whether you've spent much time in church. So I'm expecting that you have general knowledge of the concepts of Noah, that the world's become really bad, that God looks down in, in favor on Noah and warns Noah, hey, I'm going to send a flood in a hundred years, that's going to destroy all the, the, the creatures on earth and all the people. But you need to build a boat, and I'll send you the animals, and they'll get on this boat, and they'll be saved through this uh, year-long uh, flood that, that covered the earth. That's the general story. That's Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. And we're just covering 6 today, so we're not covering the whole thing. But that, that's the, 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 the main story we're going to uh, be walking through. So I just want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. And we're just going to read the whole chapter. Uh, so while you're finding that, back up one verse to chapter 5, verse 32, because we're going to pick it up there because it tells us when the story starts, sort of sets the setting. Now, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So the story starts when, it's, when Noah's 500, and if we read ahead into chapter 7, we'll see he's 600 years old when he enters the ark. So Genesis chapter six that we're reading today is gonna to be 100 years of, of, of history, okay? So let's take it back up. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, only one of two times this word's mentioned in scripture, and Jimmy spent his whole sermon last week on it, so we're only gonna do a little bit of time on Nephilim today, but it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
And if you remember last week's sermon, Jimmy went through all the theories of what this could be, ultimately looking at some passages in the New Testament from 1 Peter and 2 Peter and Jude that clearly indicate some sort of fallen angels, demons, were either possessing other humans or interacting directly with humans and corrupting the human race. That was the, the conclusion. Then the Lord, taken back up in verse 5, and yes, I know that's weird. We'll talk a little bit more about it later. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. No one knows what gopher wood is, maybe some sort of gopher tree that existed. I don't know, uh, or we give it a different name since. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, this is God speaking, behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark, male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the, of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing on the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you. God brings them. Uh, we see that in chapter six. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. That's our story. So let's spend some time thinking it through. So I'm going to first pop up the fact that there are a ton of good questions that we could ask just about what we read today. I wrote 10 of them up here. If we were to take a proper amount of time, maybe 20, 30 minutes on each, we're looking at 300 minutes, okay? So five hours of time, and I've got a Chiefs game that I've been invited to, and I'm going today. So uh, we're, we're not doing... 
half hour per question. In fact, we've started a question and answer ministry here at church. The first Sunday of every month at 7 p.m., 7 to 8.30, we're doing questions and answers. Bring any question you have about the Bible or a biblical worldview, and we'll spend time diving into them together. So if there's something up here that you really wonder or anything else you've ever wondered about the Bible, next Sunday night, October 1st, 7 p.m., you're welcome to come. Uh, We're going to cover a good chunk of this, though. So let me kind of give the the lay of the land. There are the general trust questions that just really come down to like, is it even important to believe this is true? Because this sure sounds like a myth. And isn't it just really most important to believe in Jesus? Like, because maybe Genesis and some of those things, that's kind of against science and da-da-da-da-da. Okay, so we need to spend some time talking about, can I trust the Bible and can I trust the story? Then there's just the straight up, what I would call like understanding questions. Like, okay, I've been to the Kansas City Zoo and the zoo is like, you're walking for miles to see a few animals. So how did all these animals fit on an ark? Is that even possible? Could it even work? Because try to condense a zoo down inside of a a three-leveled boat. Is that going to work? So let's just talk about that. And then you finally get to the, so what does this have to do with today? Like, is there any meaning of these stories for us today? And if so, what are they? And so we're going to cover at least a little bit of all of those. And I'm going to start with what I think is the most important question um, around trust, which is, what did Jesus say about Noah? That, that would seem to matter if we think we believe in Jesus, that we know what Jesus said. Here's what Jesus said. Now, the setting here is Matthew 24, which if you know that story, Jesus's followers, his disciples come to him. They've just left Jerusalem. Jesus is saying that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And they say, well, what's the sign of your coming, Jesus, and of your basically judgment of the world and when you're going to come and take over and finally punish evildoing? So Jesus' second coming. And Jesus said this in answer to their question, among many things, but here's what he said relative to Noah. For the coming of the Son of Man, that's how Jesus referred to himself. So this is like Jesus saying, for my coming will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the son of man be. So will Jesus's coming be. So big, big observation number one, Jesus believed in the story of Noah Jesus believed Noah was real. He believed a flood came on the earth. So what does that mean? That means if Noah's a myth, then Jesus was wrong. And if Jesus was wrong, then he's obviously not the son of God and perfect and holy and all-knowing. And if he's not that, then... All of us who've said, hey, I believe in Jesus and think he protects me and saves me from my sins, uh, we're just wrong. And we're wasting our time in church. And there's no point to any of it because, hey, 
we're just all gonna die and that's that. Okay, so that would be the logical line of thinking. Now, the good news is we do believe Jesus is the son of God, but that means that we as followers of Jesus, if we claim to follow Jesus, should look for evidence and believe in the story of Noah. And if we don't, we should seek it out and gain confidence there. Does that make sense? So then if I move on, um, why could I trust this? What might cause me to believe in this? This is a picture that I took uh, maybe a year and a half ago or two years ago when I was in the British Museum in London. And if you ever get a chance to go to the British Museum, it is the greatest museum on earth. It's every great thing that, you know, Britain's the last of the great empires. And it's every great thing that all of human history compiled into one museum. So like, we're happy when we see like have a mummy at a museum. They've got like 5,000 mummies, including the best of them, Cleopatra and all of that. They've got the Rosetta Stone, but they have this. And it's a little clay piece. It's actually only about this big, okay? And it was found in ancient Babylon, unearthed, estimated to be... Uh, 1800 BC, so add 2000 to it, 3,800 years ago. And they only deciphered how to read that writing in the mid to late 1800s. And they found this scrap and the museum curators reading it. And here's what it says, that the gods warned of an impending judgment to come upon the earth in the form of a flood and told this guy to build a boat and all the animals came to that boat and that one guy and his family survived with the animals, okay? Now, it's called the Epic of Gilgamesh because he's not called Noah in the story. He's called Gilgamesh. And I don't think it's the accurate story. I think the Bible is, and we can go into why in a second. But the important thing to know is, turns out in the last 150 years, we've found 200 other ancient culture stories where they tell a story of a flood and a guy with a boat and animals. And a couple of them that I think are very interesting. In Hawaii, the Hawaiian natives talk of a nuu who built a great canoe. And then on top of it, a house. And in the house, the animals came. Or in China, where Fuhi, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughters, notice it's not daughters-in-law, which is the right story. So a little bit like the game of phone tag. Um, but Fuhi, his wife, three sons, and daughters escaped the flood with some animals that killed everyone else on the earth. My point is, whether it's the Aborigines in Australia, the Aztecs in, in, in Central America, the, the, the Babylonians or the Sumerians over in the Middle East, they all tell the same story. And so here's my, my statement is, I, I believe the Bible's the right one, of, co of course, but ancient cultures remember the flood. I messed up something, so ignore that. Ancient cultures remember the flood. They remember this story. Why? Because they're descendants of Noah and because it really happened. Now, there's a lot more scientific stuff we could go into. And again, further plug for next Sunday night. But the point is, is there are reasons to believe that this happened, that all of our ancient ancestors tell of this story. We should believe it too. Let's move on to some basic understanding questions. Um, 
So if we were to go back to Genesis chapter five, it's a boring genealogy by all accounts when you read it the first time. Oh, Adam was born, you know, Adam was created. And then when he was 130, Seth was born to him. And then he lived this many more years, et cetera, et cetera. If you took the time to graph out the age of everyone before the flood, this is what you would get. Okay, and it's not hard. I'm a mathematician, statistician by academic background. Not hard to back into. It's about 1,650 years from Adam to the time of the flood. And in fact, interesting, like little tidbits, Methuselah, the oldest guy who ever lived, died one year before the flood, it would appear. Uh, but Lamech appears to maybe have been swept up into, in, in, into the flood, if, if I read the, the story right. Um, so we're talking about something that happened, you know, 1,650 years into the story, and I want to do one small excursion into an important question, which is, can we trust the Bible's timeline? Because if you did the same math that we just did before the flood to get the 1,656 years, you can do similar math and estimate that the time from the flood to Jesus was about 2,350 years, and from Jesus to today is a little over 2,000 years. So you add that together and you say, oh, that's only a little over 6,000 years, and yet we all have learned, have we not, that the earth is billions of years old, right? And the universe is hundreds of billions of years old, right? So how does that work? Can we trust the Bible? Am I asking you to suspend your belief when we read these stories? Yeah, it sounds outlandish, and yeah, it doesn't fit with science. No, we can trust it. So here's a couple thoughts. There's a different Christian positions on how to interpret this timeline. One common one is to see a gap between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse 2. It's called the gap theory. Uh, there's, I think, some solid biblical reasons to even consider that as a possibility. And so the earth could be much older that the, the, the creation account is, is after that. I'm not even going to go there, though, because I want to talk about what if it's only 6,000 years old? So I ask you a simple three questions I'm going to ask you. How old was Adam when he was created? No, for real, I, you have to answer. Somebody, picture, picture the story of Adam and Eve. What do you picture? Was he a little embryo laying on the ground? Okay, what was he? We have a man, how old? So we've got, we got 30s, we get mid-20s. We always picture like some good-looking, you know, 25 to 35-year-old guy, right? That, that's our general. And my guess is it probably was that. And if I would have been there one day after he was created and take some little cell from his body, would it have looked like he was a 30-year-old guy or would it have looked like, oh, he's only actually one day? Ask yourself that question. A God who can speak things into power Okay, out of nothing. Here's another question. The trees. It says he made the trees of the field and the grass and all of that. So when Adam and Eve, you know, come and look around, do they see like dirt with some little tiny stalks sticking up or not? What is the answer? They see trees. Now, what would have happened if I cut that tree down? Would it have had rings in it or is it like creamy white? I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that he made trees. And I'll give you one more. 
What is the, does, does anyone know what the closest star is to the earth? No, Jupiter's a planet, so no, but good, good guess. A star. Proxima Centauri, I had to look it up. I'm not an astronomer. I'm not an expert in any of this. Proxima Centauri, four and a half light years away. So what does that mean, four and a half light years? That means that the light that left the Proxima Centauri takes four and a half years to get to us here on Earth. At the speed of light, that's, that's fast, obviously. So it's a long, long, long ways away. And that's the closest one. So here's the question. When Adam and Eve looked up at the sky their first night, was it black and four and a half years into their experience, one little dot appeared? Ooh, wonder what that is. And then a few years later, another one, and it slowly filled in. Or were the stars there in the sky on day one? The answer is the stars, according to the Bible, were in the sky on day one, which means that God made Proxima Centauri and the light beams all the way here to the earth, which means he made it look four and a half years old or whatever, if you think about the, the logic of that. And the star that's 100 billion or 100 million light years away, same thing. If God has the power to do one, he has the power to do the other. Meaning if he can speak into existence, so we do not have to suspend. Now, that doesn't mean I don't go look at science and I love studying science. I just wanted that site excursion and I think it's important. We can trust the Bible and its timeline. So now we get to a practical question. How big is the ark and could it fit the animals? So this is a picture of my four kids uh, about a year and a half ago, I guess it was, uh, south of Cincinnati in northern Kentucky, a guy who's a bit crazy and obsessed with the ark built an ark at full scale with all three decks on the inside and a cage for every single animal uh, to see if it could be done. Okay, so this is us standing outside of the ark. It's a little hard to see, but in the upper right-hand corner, there's a, you can see the decks. It's, it's hard to tell with a bunch of different cages for every type of animal of the right size that, that they've estimated has, has, has existed. Now, how would that work? Because we read the story, it said after their kind, the birds after their kind and the creeping things on the ground after their kind. What's a kind? Now, we have a thing called a species, and we have a thing called a family. A family is like a group of species that are all related to one another and have some ability to inter, uh, uh, Mary's not the right word, I'm interbreed. I was blanking suddenly on the, the, right, the right word. Um, so if you took the families as the definition of kind, then, and added up all the, so this means there was a cat family. There might not have been a lion, a tiger, and a cheetah. There might have just been one of those. And the diversifications occurred after. Might have been one kind of duck. We've got some duck hunters in here. Uh, um, and, and they spread out from there. A type of deer. Was it an elk or was it a little key deer? Key deer would fit a lot easier uh, in, in, in the, in the ark. Uh, but, but this obsessed guy took the time to figure out that there's about 1,400 families of animals that have existed both currently and extinct, including the dinosaurs. We won't spend any time on dinosaurs today other than the obsessed guy wanted to see if could, he could fit all the dinosaurs as well. And the net of it was, yes, 
and he had about half of it to spare for storage of food and water. And he built all the food and water storage to prove it could all work for a year. And that's how long they were on the ark. So the net of it is, is it's possible. And it appears that God did that. So now let's get to some actual applications. What's this have to do with today? So why was Noah saved? And so I want to go back and, and open up uh, Genesis 6 again. So if you've got it handy, you can keep it open to Genesis 6. I'll put all the other passages up. But if we turn to 6, 8, and 9, it says this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. We had a sermon, I think it was three weeks ago now, that Jimmy gave on Enoch. And I think the title of it was Walking with God. And, you know, if you've read Genesis 5, it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Kind of an unusual passage. But what does that denote? Two people walking close, almost like best personal friends. That's the relationship between Noah and God, and that you know, why was Noah saved? Because he believed God, okay? So if we turn to Hebrews 11, you don't need to. I've got it up on, on this page here, but let, let's read what it says in Hebrews. Now, Hebrews, New Testament, we don't know the writer. Maybe it was Paul, um, but this is called the Hall of Faith because it lists all the great men of old and women of old and the great things they did in faith. And let's take it up in verse one. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So first thing about faith is you haven't seen it. None of us in this room have ever seen Jesus. Now, there were some people 2,000 years ago who actually got to meet Jesus uh, in person. We haven't, yet we have to believe in that. No one no human has ever seen God, the Father, we're told, and yet many of us believe he exists, okay? That's what faith is. Think about this. In heaven, we won't have faith. Why? Because we see. There'll still be love. There'll still be other things in heaven, but there won't be faith because we've seen Jesus. We've seen God, the Father. Let's pick it back up. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Real simple. You got to believe in God. He wants you to believe in him and believe he's a good God. That, that tells you it right there. And then we finally get to Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, what was he warned about? A coming flood 100 years from now. When you're 600, Noah, the flood's coming. In, in reverence, Noah prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So big takeaway here is if we want God's favor, then we've got to live by faith. It is that simple. That's the consistent story all throughout the Bible. Believe in God and you have favor from the Lord. Don't believe in God and you don't. So why was Noah saved? Because he had faith in the Lord. Now, what did Noah's faith look like? Go back to Genesis 6. Turn to the very last verse of chapter 6. And it says this. 
Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Very simple statement, but important. God warned him, and Noah got about the work for 100 years of building an ark and gathering that food. So the, the type of faith that Noah had and that we need to have is the type of faith that doesn't just hear what God says, but does what God says. That's a, Jesus said that, I don't know how many times, but a lot of times. And the whole rest of the Bible is example after example of people who either did believe and, and do what God said or did not believe and thus did not do and, and the results. So the type of faith that we need to have is the type that actually listens and does. Okay, so Ephesians chapter two, eight and nine are two of the most famous verses in the New Testament written by the apostle Paul. And it's the definition of what saves us. So let's read those. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Pause there. Could that be? any less clear. You are saved by faith, not by something you did. Crystal clear. But it goes on to say this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The type of faith that's real faith is the type of faith that ends up doing good works that does right things. We're not saved by those works, but the type of faith that's real actually believes, okay? So if you get to the sort of punchline of this, true faith and belief is obedience to God, belief in God. That's the real thing. Now I have this, this uh, head versus heart slash thing. Now I don't mean to offend anyone and I'm sure my wife's laughing because she's heard me say this a thousand times. Um, people talk about they had head knowledge, but never the heart knowledge. And we've all heard that. And, and for the most part, it's a well-meaning statement. It's like, I always kind of believed this, but it wasn't until this moment when it really hit me and it really came into my heart. There's nothing wrong with saying it in that, in that way. But I have a little like, this is my own little parable I made up that I've told in my family a thousand times, but I, I want you to hear it, which is this. If I were to tell you that there's a gunman right outside those doors, do not go through those doors or you're going to get shot. And I know you heard me because you repeated it back to me. Like there's no way you misheard me what I said. And yet you walk through those doors and the gunman shot you. And then we're pulling you back in and you're bleeding and we're administering like first aid. If you said to me, I had the head knowledge, but not the heart knowledge. I would just say, you didn't believe me. Okay. That's the parable. Okay. And the lesson is real belief results in action. Just because, you, oh yeah, I've heard Jesus died on a cross, that doesn't mean anything unless you believe he did that for you. So I'm going to ask you later, will you just believe that? It's an important thing to believe. Back to the, 
the story. So I'm going to go into a, a, a small final excursion before we get back to like the, the meat of this, and it's a speculation. What did those Nephilim and the sons of God and sons of men have to do with any of this? Like that's a weird part of the story. If there was some weird interbreeding involving possession of demons and stuff, I don't fully understand that except for Peter in 1st and 2nd Peter talks about it and the book of Jude talks about it and says these angels were locked away because of some sin they committed at the time of Noah. So let's, let's talk about what we've read today, turning back to what we've already read in uh, verse 9. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless. The word for blameless also just means complete in his time, which also means generations. He was complete in his generations. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. The word there means polluted. For all flesh had polluted their way upon the earth. And then God said, the end of all flesh has come before me. What's my interpretation? It might sound crazy, and it's probably among the weirder things that I actually firmly believe in the Bible, but it's this, that humanity had been corrupted by intermarriage involving some sort of fallen angels mixing with humans and all sorts of stuff. And Noah was the last of the complete humans. He was complete in his generations. And that God stepped in to reestablish humanity and wash away the genetic corruption. Now, why would that have occurred? Go back to the Garden of Eden. When God pronounced judgment on Adam first, and then on Eve, and then on the serpent, what did he say to the serpent? He said, there's coming an offspring, a seed of the woman who will crush you on your head. If I'm Satan, I sit around and I say, you know, if there were no actual humans, I could maybe win this thing. I think it's the same thing that Satan put in Hitler's head when he says, you know, if there were no Jews, I could win this thing. Okay. So manipulating and destroying the humanity would be a winning move for Satan, and God put an end to it. That's what I believe the story teaches, besides the fact that Noah was righteous and the earth was filled with violence, okay? So is there any application of that to today? Sadly, I think there is. You know, we've begun manipulating all sorts of genetic modifications. Just this week, we went to live trials of the new Neuralink you know, hooking human brains up to computers because they want to, the good side, let a paraplegic be able to think and move uh, robotic limbs, et cetera. That, that's awesome. No, nothing wrong there. But you have groups like what you have here on the bottom right. You'll not be able to read it, but this comes from a website of a group called humanityplus.org. And they say that they're working on Technologies to eliminate aging. Anyone here in favor of that technology? Okay? I certainly am. Like, I, I, I would love to not age. Okay? I don't think God will allow it, just for clarity. But that part doesn't sound so bad. But the rest of the sentence is, and, and to greatly enhance human intellectual, physical, and psychological capabilities. What are you talking about? You're talking about making us, you know, speed of a computer, the memory of like the entire internet, all inside of us. You know, at some point we're not human. 
Do you see this path? In fact, the prophet of this whole thing, the guy who kind of is the, the spokesperson, a guy named Yuval Noah Harari, uh, uh, Israeli uh, professor, says that he believes this is the last generation of homo sapiens, that's humans, and that somewhere 2050 to 70, we've moved on and evolved ourselves to something better and different. That's the sort of thing that God stepped in and judged once before, and I would worry about that again. Back to the real, like, core story now, okay? So the less scary or weird part aside, uh, let's just look at what did Noah do for those 100 years? Any takers? What did he do for the 100 years when God warned him? He built a boat. But according to 2 Peter, he also told everyone else about the judgment to come. So it says this, for if God did not spare angels... When they sinned, this is what we were just talking about, although weird, uh, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, it did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So for a hundred years, he built an ark and he told everyone about an impending judgment. God's going to destroy the world with a flood. Turn back to God. How many people listened and responded in belief to Noah's message of warning? Any takers? I heard zero. I think it's seven. Okay. I think it's seven because I think it's Noah's wife, his three sons, and his three daughter-in-laws. Seven people listened. How many people lived on the earth? You can do some simple math, 1,650 years when people are living an average of 900 years and bearing kids throughout. It's a big number, close to a billion people maybe, 750 million. He warned them, but only a few listened. Was he therefore a bad preacher? Like is the conclusion that, you know, Noah's good at building a boat, but he was a bad preacher, <laughs> okay? The answer is, no, the Bible lifts him up as a great symbol of our faith. He spoke the truth. The people didn't listen. So the, the, the application here is pretty simple. Our job is to preach the message of truth and warn of God's coming judgment because he's coming at some point, whether it's when we die and we go to meet our maker or whether he comes beforehand at, the, at whatever time he's chosen to come back. He's coming, and we're to warn other people about that fact. And the good news is, all you have to do is believe he's, he is, and that he's a good God, and that he's made a way for you to be saved. That's the good news. The bad news is, you got to believe that, and it's coming. It's coming. And so it's up to the hearer, the person who hears that message, to respond. If I warned you about the gunman outside that door and you go out there and get shot and killed, I feel bad, but that was, so, so it's our job to preach. Now, that doesn't mean that if I've told people about Jesus for the last 30 years and not one person's ever listened, that I shouldn't question. Like, Pat, maybe you're not very good at this. Maybe you should change your tactic. The answer is you probably should. 
But there comes a point, you know, take Jeremiah in the Bible. They never listened to Jeremiah. He was right about thing after thing after thing, and they never listened. And it got to a point, and I, I promise this happened with Jeremiah, where they're like, Jeremiah, we've, these are the leaders of Israel coming to him. Jeremiah, we've been wrong about everything we did previously. We should have listened to you when you told us this. We should have listened to you when you told us this. Please forgive us. Just tell us what we need to do now. And he said, there's only one thing God says not to do. One thing. Just don't go down to Egypt. Just trust them and stay right here in the land. Do you know what they said? Like literally, right when he said that, I don't know, I think we should go to Egypt. And they all left and went to Egypt. Okay? And all the bad stuff that he said would happen, happened. Okay? So sometimes we preach the truth and people won't listen. Sometimes we preach the truth and they will. Let's save as many as we can. So that gets to that sort of wrapping it up. What about you? What about you? Let's go back to what Jesus said uh, when we read Matthew 24. Remember, he's talking about his come, coming again. And he says, for the coming of the Son of Man, my coming, Jesus speaking, will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. His illustration is not only does Jesus believe in Noah in that story, he's saying, you know, there's going to be a second judgment just like that one. I'm coming again, and it's going to catch most people off guard just like it caught the first group off guard. They were just eating and drinking any normal day, and the flood came. And that's going to be what it's like for many or most when Jesus comes. So, I'm going to read an end in 2 Peter, and if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, and we're going to read like six verses, because I think this is really important. It says this, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Talking about Jesus is coming back. Where is the promise of Jesus coming back? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Have any of you ever heard stuff like that? Oh, all these religious people, they're always thinking the Lord's, but it's always the same thing. Okay? Or have you heard actual Christians say things like, every generation has thought the Lord's coming back in their lifetime. You don't really need to be that worried about it. Those are the mockers that we should expect in the last days. And the more we hear that sort of mocking, the more we should say, maybe we're in the last days. Um, so he goes on to say this, for when they maintain this, so when the mockers say all these things, and they're mocking, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But, his but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So he's saying, you know, when they give all this mocking, it's always been the same. They forget about one huge thing that happened in the past called the flood. 
There comes a point where you push God to a line, he will judge. He's not going to flood it again. What's he going to do? Fire. Okay? Fire. And let's bring it home to the most important part. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. So Jesus was here about 2,000 years ago. Sounds like two days to him. That's what that's saying. What's he in by saying? The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. I've thought, man, how long is God going to put up with all this stuff? He's not slow as Pat counts slowness, but he's patient towards us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's waiting for every single one of you who hasn't had the chance to do so to say, yes, I believe. I can see that it's not nonsense to believe in these stories. I can see that he is real and he's coming and I would like to be on the side that's saved the way Noah was versus the unexpected that isn't saved when he finally comes to, to judge the earth. So someday, when most of the world least suspects he's coming, are you ready for him? It really is that simple. If you don't know him, today's the day to know him. Not tomorrow, because we don't know our days. Today's the day to know the Lord, to call upon the Lord. Paul tells us in Romans that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon him today. And if you, if you know him, and many of you do, because I see some people shaking their heads, I can tell they, yes, I'm glad someone's saying this. Your job is to warn others, to tell them the truth. And with that, let's pray. Lord, thank you. You're a good God. We love you. I really just love your word. And I pray that it goes into our hearts and really lodges itself. Help us to believe when we struggle with our unbelief. Help us to seek out the truth because you reward those who seek after you. Help us to seek for you. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.